Entertainment's podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Hello, I'm Teresa from Payment Matters and welcome to this podcast where we're going to explore the power of FI and fintech partnerships to better serve customers. I'm joined today by Chris Peck, Managing Director, Banking EMEA for Bottomline Technologies, by Tim with Tim Tor, as well, Head of Digital Technology, Commercial Bank, NatWest, and James Hodgson, also from NatWest, and James is Head of Commercial Payments and FX Commercial Bank. So Chris, Tim and James are going to share with us their insights and learnings based on three main areas. Firstly, I'm going to say, why, why partner at all? Is it a choice? Is it a necessary evil? So why do we partner? Secondly, working with another firm rather than in-house brings different considerations. So what are those considerations and how can they be navigated successfully? And thirdly, based on a real-life program, our experts are going to share learnings based on positive and less positive experiences. So let's talk about what's driving partnerships in the first place. Chris, bottom line partners with lots of banks, what are the common challenges that banks are facing? I think it's um, fair to say that there are definitely common common challenges faced by all of the banks. And uh, to kick us off, I think it kind of is helpful to understand why and how those have grown over the last few years. The payments landscape has completely changed in the last 10 years. The innovation and uh, agenda and unprecedented pace of change for payments, both domestically and, and globally, is there for all of us to see incredible growth in the last 10 years. And if you add into that, the kind of regulatory framework uh, that comes with that pace of change and new entrants, uh, it gives an increasing number of challenges that the banks have to be able to keep up with, both in terms of compliance and innovation. So the first challenge I think that creates for banks is capacity. Is And that really what we mean by that is bandwidth. How do you keep the lights on and uh, keep up with the innovation agenda that our customers and the bank's customers are now expecting us as uh, two partners to be able to deliver against? The second element is competition. The environment has become far more competitive many more areas, not just the peer groups that the banks compete with, but also fintech, new banks, new challenger banks, digital banks, and the and the gaffers. So competition coming in from all different areas. The last aspect I would add to that is the cost in terms of the bank's cost to comply with the regulation, but also be able to innovate at that same time is incredibly difficult to manage. And I think that it would be fair to say that the way in which banks can achieve that is to partner with organisations that can help them in that regard. So, Tim, Chris has described their demanding landscape, but notwithstanding those challenges, would banks prefer to develop solutions in-house? I think historically the answer would be yes, but uh, as Chris alluded to, the market has changed quite dramatically. So over the last few years, I think banks have moved away from that traditional kind of in-house first approach and and are far more open and considerate to partnerships rather than uh, just in-house. So I think it's become the norm to to make those choices between 
do you do it yourself or do you look for someone else to support you okay and, and i guess that that brings me to kind of like you know would you then go down a supplier route or a partner route and for, for tim for you there what's the difference between the two for me a um, partner is really about finding someone who has uh, yeah the niche niche experience and uh, specific skills that they can bring to the table to really develop a relationship whereas if you look at a pure supplier relationship it could be just about filling particular fte roles to uh, yeah to close some resourcing gaps and those are two very different things so the partnership for me is is essential to really start working on longer term strategic projects rather than the short-term tactical filling of roles. So those are two very different things in my view. They are, as well as taking that a degree further then, could you partner with any firm? I think the answer is no. Uh, so, so there's obviously a number of questions that you need to look at uh, when you're trying to assess who is a strategic fit as a partnership. First of all, it starts with experience and expertise of those niche skills that I just referred to. So are you working with someone that actually adds value to your existing teams? And it's very important to kind of look at it in that sense because you can't do a partnership in isolation. You have to set yourself up to work together and to want to work together. So those people that you bring in externally need to be a value add to the team and they need to be part of the team. You have to really form it as one unit. Um, so no, you can't partner with everyone. The... Um, yeah, the, the, the way we go about it is really kind of looking at our strategic agenda and therefore looking at that logical fit where you can start to build cohesive teams uh, and that is a mixture of kind of internal and external resources. But it's very important to kind of find that mutual uh, yeah, relationship. Uh, it's not only about kind of delivery, it's also about uh, what's in it for both parties, so i.e., um, is there a strategic benefit for both parties? It could be financial, it could be intellectually, it could be um, yeah, around kind of delivery and, and market reputation. So it's really around how do you complement each other as you start to agree and embark on that uh, partnership journey. That's great. Thank you, Tim. James, Tim mentioned their long-term strategy. How important is the alignment of strategic direction. I mean, isn't it just a single project? When it's delivered, everybody shakes hands and moves on. Um, I think that that strategic alignment is key. And I think for me, certainly, it, it's what differentiates um, a partner partnership from just a supplier arrangement. Um, you know, we work for a relatively large bank. Um, we know that we're attractive, particularly because of our customer base. Um, with a, a number of fin, potential fintech suppliers, and um, there is a tendency to call every supplier arrangement a partnership. But I, I, I don't, I don't see it that way. I think sometimes we're just looking for someone to do a job, whether that's a you know a delivery kind of FTE job that Tim's talking about, or provide a specific bit of uh, technology or software to plug a gap for us. For me, the partnership really comes in when you've got that longer term strategic roadmap that you can evolve over time between the two of you clearly it has to start with a project um it's got to start somewhere and you've got to build and learn as you go um and uh, you know success breeds the right to go again so to speak but um the critical piece for me is that both sides 
occupancy a number of broader strategic avenues that you can develop into. Um, and you know, picking up on Tim's point around that kind of mutual interest, it's you know, are we really clear on our roles? Um, where our interest is, where we want to play, and where we're less interested, or where we don't want to build ourselves. And actually, there's sufficient scope for both sides um, to grow in the relationship. Thank you. I think from from what the three of you have said there, in answer to that earlier question, partnership is a choice. So, so, so I think we've established that. I want to look now at the considerations of working with a partner rather than in-house development. Chris, in your experience, what are the key ingredients for successful partnerships? It's a great, it's a great question. I, I wouldn't, I'd like to pick up on a couple of the points. Firstly, I think James and Tim have mentioned a couple of uh, things that are super important there. The, the first is to be able to complement each other that, that uh, Tim mentioned. I think that's absolutely essential. Strategic alignment, James mentioned, and, and basically having avenues to explore together, James also mentioned. I'd add, I'd add a further three, uh, which I think are super important in successful partnerships. The, the, the first is kind of recognizing and playing to each other's strengths. What does that really mean? Not replicating or duplicating the areas that we're both good at, but actually combining them so that the, the sum of the parts is, is better for everybody and all round. I think the second piece is trust and respect. So important in a successful partnership, um, having an open and honest relationship where we can share what's working well, what's not working well, so that ultimately we achieve the ambition of the partnership and what we're trying to to, uh, achieve. And I think the last one is, and this is probably one of the harder ones, but makes all the difference is confidence. And that means being able to tell each other what we th- what we know might not work, avoid mistakes, learn and use the experience of what we've had in the past so that if we know that something we've seen historically hasn't worked well, bringing that to the table to avoid both of us making a, a mistake in the program is so important. So it's kind of confidence to be open and share what we think can work and not work. And I think those three are really key to how partnerships succeed. I think they are. I think also there's, I think we all agree that there's a role for transparency as well. And Chris, sometimes it's felt that tech companies aren't wholly transparent when it comes to delivery schedules. Typical question, I know, but what are your thoughts there? I think what happens the reason that happens is I think that the organization that is the supplier in that regard often wants to try and please. And, and as a result of wanting to try and please, uh, they set targets that are frankly overly ambitious and when they know that they probably can't achieve those. So actually, it's, a, it's such a strange situation because if people were honest and realistic about timelines and plans from the start, the outcome is always so much better. It's actually a false economy when parties try to achieve dates that everybody understands and knows can't be achieved. It ends up costing more in time, in money, and ultimately erodes trust. And, and probably most importantly, disappoints the end customer which is the reason we're both looking to delight that customer, not 
not disappoint them. So being re- realistic from the outset is so important. Um, but it is understandable and you can see why uh, people are just too ambitious. And that's what then creates that challenge going forward. So, 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 so it's realism which goes hand in hand with that kind of piece about the transparency and the honesty as well we're talking about earlier, clearly. So, so Tim, we've talked about transparency and honesty. Now, obviously, in all partnerships, some conversations can be trickier than others. So what's the best approach in those sort of circumstances? Building on what Chris was saying, I think the relationship has to be built on trust and uh, transparency. And it's very important to, yeah, to pick up on one of Chris's other points is to have that customer in mind. So who are you actually building your solution for? So i.e. it could be an external customer or an internal stakeholder, but who's going to be consuming the end product? That's a key question to ask. And then you have to make sure that you keep that customer or end user in mind um, when you start delivering outputs of that uh, partnership. So the key there is to really test and learn and to fail fast, to really get that feedback loop established, but also to be open and honest about feedback. So if things aren't working well, don't beat up the supplier slash partner in that circumstance. Really reflect on that to say, okay, how can we do better? How can we change our strategy on execution and delivery? Well, you, you may want to even tweak the end product scope because you're you're learning new insights. And if you don't apply those insights, you're definitely going to compromise on the end quality of that experience. So yes, uh, it's absolutely vital to be open to be honest and to trust each other and to listen to each other rather than to fall back into that traditional pattern of trying to please people because that's really going to uh, yeah, negatively impact the quality of the output yeah most certainly listen and be receptive um, and, and um, sort of open to challenge and um, i'm going to move us on now to sort of bringing theory to life and sort of real life ex- examples and learnings from a program that bottom line and that NatWest delivered in partnership. James, can you describe for us, please, the proposition that was delivered? NatWest were already number one in the bank's market by volume for the banks, Um, but we had a couple of legacy channels. Um, They were old, tired, dated, generally a bit unloved. Um, And as of that, most of our customers weren't using them, were using third parties. And for a bank that's worried about Customer, um, customer primacy wants to hold that relationship um, and deepen that relationship with our customer. That was an increasing challenge for us because backs payments are still, you know, hugely important to corporate businesses. We often think that they're diminishing; they're, they're really not. Um, so, you know, having such a hugely important payment type, but actually the the customer experience and that channel experience around it not being where it was was a challenge for us. Um, so we wanted to upgrade that capability. Um, we wanted to migrate um, a, a number of several thousand customers over to that channel and really give them kind of a best in class um, experience. Um, we recognized that, um, that our expertise or our in-house expertise in this part of the market um, was limited. Um, things had moved on since um, we'd put the original channels in place. A lot of the people had moved on. We probably didn't have the right insights and expertise that we'd really have liked to have had. Um, and we also recognised that with the 
shall we call it uncertainty um, caused by new payments architecture in the wider market, um, that building our own capability um, might not be the right outcome for the bank as well. So um, the, the partnership approach really came from those those two drivers. You know, how do we, um, you know, le- leaning back on some of the things that Chris has kind of said around um, how do we think about cost and bandwidth, but also about how do we deliver the best possible customer experience um, for those customers. So we've we run a kind of a multi-year program with Bottomline to bring their leading um, backs platform in-house, white label it for our customers as a as a first step. Um, and now we've completed the migration of all of our legacy customers over to it. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll cover a little bit more of the detail, but it's it's clear that um, those customers are really enjoying a much better customer experience. The functionality that they've had that they've got access to now is streets ahead of um, what they they had before um and i'm very clear um that we couldn't have delivered that experience if we'd gone down a building house route that's brilliant thank you you've painted a really really bright picture there thank you tim for context what type and size of customer are we talking about here that's using this proposition so it's a good question we uh, started with a range of customers, but, but focusing first on the, the smaller customer base, so uh, smaller type businesses that utilize backs. And we worked our way through mid-corporate to large corporate uh, as part of the uh, yeah, relationship that James just uh, referred to. The key thing to call out uh, is really that for all of those customers, they share very common user patterns in the sense that it's you know payroll payments they do, so it's critical you know, independent of what size business you're talking about, you know, it's critical for them to make these payments and do it right. Interestingly, we had different use cases. So we had customers that were still using legacy channels like fax or you know, telephony to initiate payments. But we also had digital channels where our customers were using uh, legacy technology to submit uh, fax payments. And all of those were in need for uh, yeah, significant revamping and, and investment. And interestingly, when you go down to an individual customer experience level point of view, all of those clients were actually quite unhappy with the solutions that we historically provided. So we initially thought that uh, those that were using uh, you know, legacy technology like fax to, to issue payments would probably be the laggards and, and those that don't really want to move to a digital first proposition. But actually, in reality, when we started kind of calling those customers and engaging, we found that that their biggest frustration point was the fax technology. So, you know, it's really about kind of getting to know your end users and and testing and learning with those clients as you move forward. And in reality, they absolutely love the digital experience that we offer today. Now, one of the challenges was to to do this uh, smoothly and and to manage that transition for those clients and, and not disrupt their day-to-day operations and that was really where the partnership kicked in we had to work together with those clients to learn with them and also help them through that journey to minimize any disruption because as you can imagine any critical payment processes like payroll are absolutely essential for us to uh, yeah to deliver without any uh, notable customer uh, yeah disruption so it was a very challenging project but we did really well and it was always about maintaining quality 
uh, irregardless of size and use case of those different client bases. Obviously, the larger customers you're dealing with, the more complex that uh, setup uh, becomes. So you're then dealing with often multiple users, uh, multiple legal entities within that. So it's then about, okay, how do you roll that out? But uh, yeah, it was a broad range of customers that we uh, supported uh, across the kind of business banking and commercial banking space. Likely, lovely. Um, Tim and James, thank you for your candor there, um, because you've really described sort of the, 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 what, what customers migrated from to really, really well, the complexity involved and the criticality of the payments. Chris, turning now to a bottom line point of view, what was needed to support the proposition? There's a couple of aspects. Um, the, the, the first is technical which was actually the payments platform that we were migrating the customer base to. And as, uh, as James and Tim have already kind of mentioned, that, that it's, a, it's a world-class payments platform that has, pleasingly for all of us, provided a high-quality experience for the customers that have now migrated onto that platform. And actually, the, that was the easier part quite frankly, because it was a platform that already existed. We have many thousands of direct customers on that payments and collections platform. And so from a technical perspective, we needed to white label that to make it, uh, to give it the brand and appearance and feel consistent with, with the NatWest look and feel for the customers. And, and that was actually relatively straight straightforward for us to do. The more challenging uh, aspect of of the program was how do we migrate the customers and and do that in a way that gives them a good sense of what they're moving from and to. And so from that perspective, honestly, it's teams of people. It's teams of experienced people, both from the NatWest side and from our side, working extremely closely so that in terms of the customer engagement, the customer onboarding, the ongoing support functions gives the customer confidence in moving to a new payments platform, which is a big thing for any organization, an important part of what they're doing. So the people aspect was definitely the most demanding. Um, it needed experienced teams on both sides, but ultimately was extremely successful and uh, worked extremely well for the customers to move across. That's great, thank you. Tim, I'm going to bestow upon you now the benefit of hindsight. So looking back, what worked well? I think the key thing that worked well for us was that we truly embraced that partnership mentality. So we obviously started by setting ourselves uh, you know, clear objectives. And as I described in my, uh, my previous point is, it was absolutely off the essence that quality was our number one priority so we went into it with that mindset to say okay right the customer experience needs to be spot on we're talking here about critical processes for our clients we want to make sure we actually make the process better not worse and therefore that disruption had to be minimized we also accepted that other variables like um, time and cost were things we had to keep an eye on but they weren't leading so we absolutely agreed that quality was the number one priority and that we had to make some compromises where needed on time so i.e the time scales that we set ourselves to complete uh, the stage gauge within the project 
or to complete the migration process. Those were guidelines. They weren't leading. And that's also requiring us as a, as a business to manage that message within our uh, yeah, own organization. Obviously, there's uh, stakeholders to manage to, to make sure that everybody is uh, aware of that uh, choice. And there might also be uh, customer communication that you have on the back of that. So how do you adopt uh, and adapt your strategy as you uh, yeah, gain new learnings? But the key thing next to kind of setting the uh, objective or the shared objective around quality was also to, um, yeah, to test and learn, as I said previously. So start small, focus on a pilot group of customers to get those learnings, to test the processes, to test the customer experience, get the feedback tweak where needed and, and you know, change your approach where uh, required. Really to, to get it right first time for the majority of customers that follow the process. So we, we worked with our um, yeah, relationship teams to identify friendly customers that were keen to be part of that pilot process. So that's very much a key step in any development of any project is you know, make sure you have an ability to, to have that feedback loop in a fairly safe environment. And then once you've proven that, you can start to scale. And that really worked very well as a partnership. Perfect. Thank you. James, every program has success criteria and drivers. But for you, with this proposition, what were the critical drivers? If I go back to kind of why we all wanted to come into this partnership in the first place, um, we had a legacy book of customers that we wanted to migrate and give a much better experience. So retaining that legacy book and making sure that we um, we lost as few of them as possible on the journey, so to speak. And also we then had ambitions to grow the overall book. Um, so um, those are the, the kind of the two almost headline numbers, but you also need to then think what does that actually mean? And back to Tim's point around kind of quality, um, customer focus. So customer focus, one of the number one um, things that we were measuring to do that. So important that we had a view of NPS from the start, right from the pilot through the onboarding journey and then in life. Um, and then that also then links to a really high or setting and agreeing up front a really high appetite to test and learn, um, to keep going. How do we refine that NPS, how do we continue to challenge ourselves around it? So James, thanks for that. that. That's a really good understanding of the NPS score being a constant measure for monitoring, but also for, for altering the program and tweaking it as you went along. Chris, does what Tim and James have described as working well, does that chime with you? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think the other element we need to remember is that part of the migration program was it actually took place during a during the pandemic, um, which meant that it became even more important for both of us to listen, focus, and understand how and what that felt like for the customer. So. Um, we kind of doubled down on making sure that we were understanding the customer experience. We had metrics that were measuring their delight, but also what was important to them in terms of timescales. And uh, not just from the customer perspective, which was super important, it also meant that our teams were working together remotely. So, um, and that went so well that at times it was difficult to actually tell who was NatWest and who was 
was bottom line, which is a testament, frankly, to the way in which the teams and the two organisations worked together at what was an extremely challenging time. And if I just build on what uh, Chris said about the pandemic, that was also a very interesting uh, learning experience for everyone. Obviously, a, a tragic event in many respects as well, but it also brought the best out of the team, um, creative thinking as well to help fix customer problems. So as every organization, our clients also had to work from home and all of a sudden you get practical issues around, okay, uh, security tokens uh, used for kind of login and, and payment authorization would normally be sent to corporate offices because that's obviously from a fraud perspective, the safest uh, delivery place. Uh, but that doesn't really work in a work from home situation anymore. So collectively, we very quickly identified an opportunity to use uh, a piece of software, so a soft token, to replace that process. And the great thing about that was that that on our side, it was working with our risk and security colleagues to quickly assess whether or not that was a viable option and, and within our security appetite. Uh, it was, and that was fantastic to kind of see that response. You know, a new solution was, was introduced with, within a matter of days to really delight customers. And uh, that was very well received by our clients. So I think a high-performing partnership really starts to lean on each other and challenging each other with some of those yeah, unknowns that are being thrown at us. And um, yeah, I was very impressed with how we managed to uh, respond quickly to uh, every emerging uh, and unfolding uh, crisis. So uh, really echo what Chris was saying that, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was challenging. There were obviously also some, some further compromises on timescales because no one in a pandemic would push customers to the edge, um, you know, where they're trying to fight for their uh, uh, existence and their, their livelihood. Um, you know, we were very respectful of the fact that we had to extend timescales of completing this project. We worked with clients. We identified which ones were ready to, to migrate and those that needed more time because they um, faced challenges due to furlough schemes or, um, you know, other business priorities. We were... Uh, yeah, trying to accommodate as much as possible over a longer period of time to uh, to work with those clients. So if you take a big step back, the original timescales were not held, and, and you know that was fine because we said from day one, quality is our focus, and uh, yeah, we really stick uh, to that philosophy, and uh, it brought the best out of people uh, during that crisis. It is a testament um, that fluidity there right from the start. It's um, it's it's definitely what you want. From a partnership, sometimes you need to remember it's a kind of a dual-edged sword. Though I think there were times where the the program was was running at such a kind of almost a fluid state that I, I remember being in a room trying to make sure that we were documenting from a contract perspective, and the the program was running almost so fast that it was causing us challenges to keep the documentation up to date. Um, but I think that shows the the, the true partnership in play. Tim, you've introduced there quite nicely for me, kind of I was going to go to shade because, you know, clearly lots of good things happened on this programme and customers are delighted at the end of it, but not everything goes to plan on a programme. Of course it doesn't. So, you know, you've described for us there that customers were slower than envisaged to migrate for, you know, for, for sort of reasons that are individual to those customer bases, but also, of course, for the pandemic. So, Chris, from a bottom line point of view, what was needed to spur migration? It was people. 
I mean, interestingly, we together we jointly created a set of digital assets, videos, uh, tutorials, things that we believed would really help the customer to have a frictionless onboarding experience, a high quality experience. We thought those would be widely used um, and our expectation was that they would be widely used. Um, in truth, they weren't. They weren't used to the degree that we'd expected at all. And, and actually, people wanted their hand held. They wanted to be walked through the new experience. So what was needed was was people, experienced people, uh, Fortunately, we both had experienced teams in handling large migrations that could literally talk with and walk the customer through those those changes and the onboarding experience. So um, less use of digital and greatly increased use of people, perhaps again, as we've already mentioned, driven by the pandemic and the challenges businesses were facing. So, yeah definitely more people involvement than we'd expected okay so so a slight a slight increase in cost then but you're from what you're saying not wholly significant and as you say it was it was quality and tim said earlier about the investment in, in a long-term relationship and I'm, I'm interested in that james we talked earlier about aligned strategies you know longevity of relationship you know the difference between a supplier and a partner relationship so with that in mind what's next so it's important as i said before to remember that it's you know you success on the first stage or the first deliverable is what really kind of gives you the license to go again um, and I suppose that's where we are now. We've got the kind of first key deliverables over the line. And it's now really that the partnership starts to get exciting. I think everybody recognised that those first things um, were the kind of almost core enablers, um, but, you know, essential, um, great delivery, but maybe not the exciting bit. And um, now um, it's great to see us getting onto that. So we've we've got a number of things now that we're starting to explore, um, both enhancements to the existing BACS programme um, building out new customer experiences, expanding it in, um, so we can expand our both the market and the customer base that we can apply it to, um, but also kind of deepening that experience with those customers, but also taking the partnership into net new areas. Um, so an example of that would be um, we're very close now to deploying um, a new confirmation of payee service for our agency bank population. Um, most of most of the listeners will know that confirmation of payee is now available to um, kind of most of the, via most of the major banks. But if you're a small ch- uh, agency or challenger bank, um, you're, you're, there are gaps there in your service, which makes them potentially vulnerable to fraud. Um, as a big indirect asset supplier in the market, um, we need to close that gap. And it's an area where we see the partnership with Bottom Line really helping us. That's interesting. And I'm appreciating that you can't say too much because, you know, it's early days and what have you. But with the confirmation of payee and agency banking initiative that you've referred to, what's in that for NatWest? Um, it, it's back to my early point around deepening those relationships with the customer. Um, clearly, we, we are a, um, a significant bank. We, are, we, take a major, uh, we take a major role in the UK um, payments market and the resilience and security of that service is obviously critical to us. It's a hygiene factor and making sure that we can extend that um, to our agency customers is key. So 
making sure that the the reach of this very important industry initiative um, is available to them is a, is a great um, benefit for us. And I guess just protecting the you know widening the industry reach and protecting the market. Yep. So yeah, so a good play. And um, thank you. Um, to close, a heartfelt thank you to Chris, Tim, and James for your candor in sharing your experiences and giving really actionable learnings when it comes to partnership. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, which I hope you have, do have a look at the wider series as well, which examines other payment topics on the payment podcast series. But Chris, Tim and James, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.